This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Chen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. The Democrats have had some real shakeups this week. From a new party leader to reordering the primaries, Democrats are tinkering with the status quo. That includes the normally pro-union President Biden pushing Congress to avert a union-led rail strike. We'll have the strike latest, plus the leader of the Oath Keepers far-right militia group faces up to six decades in prison, and the former president sits down to dinner with two outspoken anti-Semites. Wendy Benjaminson is with us. She's the deputy managing editor for U.S. government at Bloomberg News. Wendy, welcome. Thanks for having me. Also with us, Benji Sarlin, the Washington bureau chief for Semaphore News. Benji, great to have you. So glad to be here. And Josh Meyer, the domestic security correspondent at USA Today. Josh, always great to have you on. Great to be back. Thanks, Jen. So President Biden is pushing Democratic leaders to radically reorder the order in which states nominate presidential candidates. And he wants to start with South Carolina, New Hampshire, and Nevada. That's a big shift away from Iowa, which has led the process for 50 years. Wendy, how big of a deal is this? It's a pretty big deal um, for a large part of the 20th century. I mean, really, the second half of the 20th century. Iowa has been first, followed by New Hampshire. Um, And the problem with that is that Iowa and New Hampshire, wonderful places, um, very end of their politics, are, I think, around 98% white and largely rural. And many presidential candidates will not do well in Iowa and New Hampshire and then realize they're throwing good money after bad and they get out of the race before a single black, brown or Asian American has voted. And so the Democrats are really looking at whether that is a good idea. Um, Michigan is on the um, is a possible for the first uh, primary. Maybe South Carolina, which is the state that you know put Biden over the top after he d- didn't do well in um, in Iowa, New Hampshire in 2020. So it's a real attempt to allow all of America to vote early in the process. Benji, how do you think changing the order might affect who gets nominated for the for president, at least on the Democratic side? Well, it's interesting. Part of the argument against Iowa in particular is that, you know, the case for them before used to be they were very good at picking the eventual president. You know, it was them who put famously Barack Obama on a path to the nomination in 2008. But lately, the record's not been as clear. It was a very tight race between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton in 2016. It was between Buttigieg and Sanders in 2020. So part of the argument has been, if we're already treating the Iowa caucuses as this kind of strange, unrepresentative vote already, why elevate them to this position when everyone is waiting for New Hampshire, and really especially South Carolina, where you have the black vote that is so important to the Democratic Party and so critical to who wins the nomination in most years? Um, why not just skip over them and get to the point early? Go to a state like Michigan or South Carolina, where you have a better cross-section of voters. Well, we got this suggestion from Zach, who tweets, what if we put more weight on later primary locations? Josh, your thoughts? Uh, You know, I I just think this is long overdue. And I do think that um, even if you put weight on later, uh, you know, uh, caucuses and, and races, that this is something that needed to happen a long time ago. I mean, Iowa... Um, you know, this is something where Jimmy Carter, I think, first started this when he did well in Iowa. And I think criticism um, intensified back in 2020 when Iowa Democrats failed to support accurate, timely results from the 2020 caucuses. 
that just added fuel to the underlying concerns and undermined the public's confidence in the state. But but more than that, it's just become almost a caricature where you have, um, you know, New Hampshire and Iowa basically setting the agenda, especially for the Democrats um, in the campaigns. And they're, they're just very quirky and they're not representative of the general public. And that's what Biden was saying. Um, you know, I think he struggled in the early caucuses, too. Um, and it was, you know, when he finally got to South Carolina, where I think he was starting to get some traction. So, you know, I think this is something that's good. Whether they actually do something about it remains to be seen. Well, right. When Biden has said to the DNC that this is what he wants to happen. But what are the next set steps? Well, the DNC is meeting this weekend to vote on this and to vote on which state will go first. Um, as I said earlier, Michigan is really pushing for this. South Carolina is pushing for it. Nevada, which is a much more Latino-heavy state, is pushing for it. So um, I, I, they are going to vote this weekend and decide. Um, I think, based on what my colleagues here, Benji and Josh, have said, I mean, I think absolutely that everyone in the Democratic Party agrees it's time to do something. So I think this weekend will happen. One note, though, is that the parties run the primaries while states and counties run the general election. The Republican Party will probably stick with Iowa and New Hampshire to get their base vote out early. Benji, if the DNC approves this change, would it apply to 2024? Uh, I would have to check the basics there. But yes, the idea is that it would apply to 2024. Now, it might not be especially relevant in 2024 because Biden might run. It's likely he would be probably essentially unopposed if he did. But given Biden's age, there's always constant speculation about whether he might decide ultimately not to run, in which case you could have an extremely competitive, wide open field with no obvious immediate front runner uh, in 2024. And this would really dramatically change how people campaigned, I think. On Thursday, the Senate voted to avert a rail strike but denied workers seven days of paid sick leave. For union leaders and workers, that sick leave was crucial. Here's Michael Baldwin, president of the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen. You know, when you have people throughout the country that have employers who pay them sick time, uh, you have your employer, the railroads, paying management uh, paid sick days, and and you can't come to the table and bargain uh, with your rank and file for the same, the same thing that you offer to your management employees. It, it just doesn't uh, make any sense. It's not, there's no common sense to that, in my opinion. Biden has said he'll sign the Senate-approved measure as soon as today. Benji, why is he so eager to get this settled? Because the consequences would be disastrous. There was a lot of fear ahead of the midterms that a rail strike would just cripple the economy. Um, We often don't think about things like freight and things like rail, but they are absolutely essential to getting the absolute basics of our economy running. Um, Even things like, for example, um, fertilizer is incredibly dependent on rail and our agriculture is incredibly dependent on fertilizer and food prices were surging during this recent run of inflation. So that's just to name one example of an area where people were very worried about a rail strike causing problems. They would just love to have this behind them. However, the process has been pretty messy and may come with some fallout. Now, senators passed the bill to avert a strike, but they didn't pass an added measure that would have given the rail workers seven days of paid sick leave. Wendy, why didn't that pass? Well, I think it didn't pass because uh, there was opposition from Republicans. And as Benji said, there there was a great deal of hurry to just get this done. However, I mean, I think the politics of this is not great for Biden or the Democrats. And <laughs> you had Bernie Sanders calling Ted Cruz a socialist 
he meant that as a compliment, um, to um, because Ted Cruz was in favor of sick leave and Marco Rubio was in favor of sick leave. Six Republicans out- voted for the sick leave. Yes, absolutely. Um, and they are they are trying to out Union Joe, Union Joe, if you get what I mean. So, um, but the majority of Republicans were were dead set against it um, because they thought it would add to the cost or you know whatever. But the um, so Biden may come back and do it again um, and try to get sick leave worked in. But right now, the priority was to get the trains moving. Benji, can you just contextualize this a bit for us in terms of the profits rail companies have been making in recent years and, and the arguments workers are making about why they need this sick leave? Yeah. So the argument against for the from the workers is that sick leave is just, you know, it's the norm in developed countries all around the world. The United States is an exception already. Um, it's certainly the norm in other highly unionized industries. Um, but it has been an exception with the railroad, and they were trying to change that. Now, we put this question specifically to Ian Jeffries, the president and CEO of the Association of American Railroads. And his explanation was that freight companies could not quite make the paid leave work, but they tried to balance it out with a ben- as a... Uh, as a 24% wage increase, basically arguing like, look, you're getting a large increase in pay. That makes up for what the equivalent would be of that benefit. But why not just give them the benefit? Well, New York Magazine had an excellent piece on this the other day. And it's basically the rail companies have transitioned to a system that uses significantly fewer workers to cut costs. But it also raises the stakes for each train to go out on time and fully stocked with very, very little room for error. So they don't want to hire more, so giving higher and higher wages is an easier trade-off to them than anything they worry would create some staff shortages. So there's a, a real basic kind of structural issue here that is putting uh, labor and management at odds. We got this tweet from Rick who says, 365 days in a year and you get one sick day that is disrespectful to the same people we're saying can cripple the economy. We also got this tweet from Michael who says, do railroad workers have leverage if they have a wildcat strike? There's no way that many specialized workers could be replaced in time to avert economic damage. Benji? Well, wildcat strike would be a dramatic move. I mean, part of the reason that rail negotiations are followed so closely is that they are not treated like other industries where an extended strike is acceptable. You know, it's it's not nice, but it's just something that happens. This is an area where there's just massive implications that reach, you know, national security levels. So it would be a really dramatic step to have something like a wildcat strike. And just to be clear, a wildcat strike is, is taken by workers without leadership's permission. We're talking to Semaphore's Benji Sarlin, Bloomberg's Wendy Benjaminson, and Josh Meyer of USA Today. It's the Friday News Roundup. If you have questions or comments about the biggest stories this week, tweet us at 1A or email us at 1A at WAMU.org. Back with more in just a moment. I'm Jen White. This is 1A from WAMU and NPR. Let's jump back to our conversation. Let's stick with railroads for the moment. We got this uh, question from Anne who asks, do rail workers get paid time off that they can use for sick days? And Mike tweets, is it true that railroad workers do have existing paid leave days in their contracts? Is calling them sick days then a matter of semantics? Wendy, can you clarify for us? I will give it a shot. Um, As Benji, I think, said or Josh said, they do get, um, you know, one day off that is not, necessarily, uh, you know, for, for a holiday or vacation. 
The trouble is, though, that people get sick. Their children get sick. Their spouses get sick. And P and workers, you know, for I'm sure all of us on this call get paid sick leave. Um, and it's, you know, it's nice to know that there are times when you can take care of your family um, or yourself and not infect your coworkers. So the idea that um, people who work in such close proximity like rail workers cannot take a, cannot get sick without losing their pay is, is a little bit surprising. Benji, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, it's a basic question of, again, here, you know, the idea of wages versus this very specific benefit. And workers have made the case here that it's not enough just to say, oh, you get one, you know, day you can use, you can have benefits. It's that having these unexpected illnesses is an actual danger to their health. They've pointed to cases where workers were reluctant to go to a doctor, and it later turned out to be something serious, even dangerous. Uh, so this is very much a, a very very direct personal issue for many of these workers. Well, on Wednesday, a New York Times editorial ran with the headline, if Biden is really pro-union, he has one chance to prove it. Winnie, what is this, dispu- what is this dispute meant for, for Biden's pro-union cred, especially in light of the fact that during the first three quarters of 2022, the rail industry made a record-breaking $21.2 billion in profits? It did make a lot of money uh, during that time. Yeah. And this strike would have cost them a tremendous amount of money. It would have cost, uh, well, it would have cost the economy $160 billion. It would have cost them. Um, And, you know, but also you were so right when you say um, Joe Biden's union cred, because he is the guy from Scranton. We have heard for 40 years, those of us who have been listening to Biden for 40 years, have heard him talk about how he's the worker guy. He's the union guy. And yesterday at the news conference he had with the French president, Emmanuel Macron, of course, he was asked about this and he was... um, very confident and proud that he had struck this deal that now Congress was um, imposing on the workers, whether they liked it or not. And then he said, you know, and sick leave, yeah, you know, we'll get to it. We'll get to it next time. Um, I, you know, it's good there's not an election for two years, because I think he he would have um, had this happen before the midterm. Democrats would have had a different time and his approval rating would have sunk. Well, let's move on to a landmark push on student debt, also from the Biden administration. It could be in jeopardy. On Thursday, the Supreme Court said it will hear arguments in a case challenging the administration's student loan relief program. Oral arguments for this case are scheduled for February. But Josh, what happens until then, specifically for those who've already filed for relief? You know, I think that's up in the air. I, I know a lot of people, including my wife, who, who have done that. So I think, um, you know, this is another wild card in the whole thing. I think it's gone back and forth. Um, and, you know, nobody, I think, can really predict what the Supreme Court's going to do on this thing. I mean, I think that they've um, surprised people with some of their rulings lately, um, including upholding some of the efforts to hold President Trump accountable Um uh, you know, and, and force him and, and some of his associates to, to respond to subpoenas. But this is the kind of thing where, um, you know, I, we have to wait and see what they're going to do. I mean, the program is necessary to help 40 million eligible Americans, uh, according to the Biden administration, who are struggling under the burden of student loan debt, um, recover from the pandemic, move forward with their lives. Republicans, of course, you know, say that, hey, why are we giving them a bailout when we're not giving other people a bailout? So unfortunately, something that's a very important issue uh, as is often the case, has become freighted with such politics that it's going to be hard to sort it out. So um, I'm actually very curious to see what the Supreme Court's going to do on this one and see see where they where they come down on it. And but you just lay out the legal arguments ag- against it that are being presented right now. 
So the issue, this is one of a, a variety of legal challenges, a lot of them that have been thrown out in courts already. And the main challenge for them has been trying to find plaintiffs who say that they have been harmed in some way. In other words, that they have standing is the legal term to sue. And this is the very first one that has uh, kind of broken through there. It's likely to be a question that's going to come up again in, uh, before the Supreme Court as well. So it, this is one of a variety of legal challenges. It's possible other ones advance as well. But the big challenge is going to be proving that someone is harmed from a program. And the Biden administration has made changes in response to try to block some of these lawsuits to strengthen their their case. Uh, the, the big challenge is going to be proving that someone has been harmed by the fact that student debt is actually being canceled. And, and Benji, is there also a question about whether or not President Biden could legally make this move without more congressional input? Absolutely. The question is how you get that in front of a court, which has been the problem with prior challenges to um, executive actions. Um, It's not enough just to show that it was done illegally or that it exceeded bounds. You have to get a case that shows someone was actually harmed by it, that there's a direct connection, that there's a way for courts to actively take it up, who often defer to uh, executive authority from the White House. Um, But yeah, there has long been a question about this. Um, The Biden administration uh, administration thinks it's fairly straightforward in that the law uh, allows extraordinary measures to be taken during the pandemic. Um, so part of the issue is as this like as this legal case drags on, you know, there's also increasing pressure to undo some of those emergency measures, which makes the you know the rationale for it at least you know politically harder and harder. Even if legally they might still be able to uh, to trace it to those orders. So it's a complicated question. Biden in the past had said he himself was unsure whether he had legal authority around this, but presidents have sometimes concluded when they reach some kind of impasse uh, that they're willing to push the boundaries and see what the courts do. We have another example right now where, you know, President Obama famously said he did not have power to, for example, uh, grant protections to young undocumented immigrants, so-called dreamers. Then he implemented DACA, a program that did exactly that and is still being debated in the courts now, you know, even a decade later. So this is definitely another example where the White House knew they had a legal challenge on their hand, but decided they wanted to risk it. Hmm. Uh, Wendy, what does this mean for the millions of Americans who are hoping this debt relief comes through? Well, it means, as they said earlier, it means just, you know, please sit down and wait. Um, They have extended, I believe, the moratorium on payments so people don't have to make their payments now. Um, And the question really is, is, did Biden have a legal basis for making this executive order? They are hanging it on the HEROES Act of 2003, which was passed when George W. Bush was president, that says that the education department can waive regulations during a time of war or national emergency. The U.S. is still under a national emergency that Donald Trump declared during COVID in March of 2020. So no one's lifted that order, even though, you know, many people are back to their normal schedules, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So the states are saying, you know, forget this national emergency. It's not COVID. We want our tax revenue from, you know, from the payments. And um, you you can't base it on this act anymore. So that's what the Supreme Court will look at. Yet if the administration followed the letter of the HEROES Act, I, I'm going to go on a limb here and predict that this court will, you know, they're very originalist and they will look at the law. And if it's within the letter of the law, they might say he's got standing. But who knows? They are also very conservative and they may not. Well, I've seen questions circulating among our listeners about how this debt relief program is different or any different from 
debt relief that's been extended to to certain sectors of industry. Benji, how is it different? Well, that's been sort of the debate. Now, the White House has made a talking point that a lot of experts and not just conservative critics have said is kind of disingenuous, which is they have argued that, look, we gave out trillions of dollars in loans to businesses through the PPP program during the pandemic. Um, And those loans were in large part forgiven. And, you know, even some members of Congress had small businesses that benefited from those loans and had them forgiven. So why not do the same for students? Well, there are some big differences here. The pandemic relief loans were essentially put out with the entire goal of having them be forgiven. They were essentially a grant program that in which it would turn from a loan to a grant if you fulfilled the conditions of the loan, which is what Congress wanted you to do, which is use that a certain percentage of that money on payroll. What we were doing in the pandemic was trying to prevent people from being fired by the millions. Um, and it succeeded in many ways. Uh, the economy has had a lot of trouble with inflation, but we really did prevent some kind of mass extended period of, of deep unemployment. Um, student debt is very different. Um, this was These are loans that were issued very much with the intention that they would be paid under a legal system that existed. A lot of people have argued that that system is unfair and that it was uh, the student debt situation was growing out of control. Um, student debt was rising rapidly, was starting to outpace other forms of debt like credit cards and mortgages, and was you know imposing a, a burden, they were arguing, on especially younger Americans who were trying to buy a home and start a family. But this is a policy debate that existed entirely before the pandemic. In fact, virtually all the presidential candidates uh, on the Democratic side already had plans to either reduce, uh, reorganize, or outright cancel student debt. That was all before the pandemic. It was a very high-profile issue. So So the argument against comparing it to other loans is that, look, you can say it's attached to the pandemic, but this is not a policy debate that was especially connected to it. Well, we'll definitely revisit this story in February when oral arguments are heard for this case. A new Congress will take office next month. That means new leadership. On Wednesday, New York Representative Hakeem Jeffries was unanimously elected to be the Democratic Party's top leader in the House. We look forward to finding opportunities to partner with the other side of the aisle and work with them whenever possible. But we will also push back against extremism whenever necessary. Jeffries will replace current House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He's the first black person to hold this role in Congress. Nancy Pelosi is 82. Nearly a quarter of Congress is over 70. Josh, what does this move say about efforts to make room for a younger generation of leaders in Congress? You know, I think it's a huge issue. I mean, I think it's even more when you talk about people that old and the age difference here, it's even more of a generational thing. I mean, I think people think of a generation as 20 years or so. And, you know, Pelosi's 82, uh, Jeffries is 52. Um, but it's even more than that. I mean, you um, you have a changing of the guard among the whole s- senior leadership. It's not just Nancy Pelosi who's stepping down. It's Majority Leader Steny Hoyer stepping down and James Clyburn who's stepping down as well. I mean, Hoyer um, is 83, uh, Clyburn's 82. Um, and the people that are replacing them are much younger. Catherine Clark, who's going to be Jeffrey's top deputy, um, a progressive from Massachusetts, is 59. So you could even say that she's like the, you know, the, the old fogey of the new bunch. But um, 
Pete Aguilar from California, um, a member of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, um, is 43. He's going to be the number three person there, um, taking the role that Jeffries had before um, as the Democratic Caucus chairman. But, you know, it's something that's important. I mean, as somebody who has spent many, many years listening and covering congressional hearings, there are a lot of really, really old people in Congress. And, and in some cases, and many cases, that is important to have that institutional knowledge uh, and that seniority there, especially for, for their home districts. They're, they get uh, senior roles in committees and they're able to bring home the bacon, as it were, uh, for their constituents. But, you know, it's a problem when you have people that are that, are that old. I think that, you know, uh, Pelosi has, has not really shown signs of aging. She's amazing. Um, and, and really neither is Hoyer or Clyburn. But, you know, they are getting into their well into their 80s. And so it is something to see. But when you watch some of these congressional hearings, you have, you know, people especially on the Senate side where they're even older, you know, just sort of appearing to be doddering, not really understanding things. You might remember uh, during the, um, you know, some of the Senate hearings over uh, Supreme Court justices, uh, you know, Dianne Feinstein really forgetting what she was saying, and it raised questions about her mental capacity and so forth. Um, or, um, you know, there's other senators like that as well. I mean, on the Senate side, we have two people uh, who are almost 90, Feinstein and Chuck Grassley. So I think the issue of, of how old our lawmakers are is something that is it's good that the House is addressing it. I'm waiting to see if the Senate's going to do the same thing. But um, yeah, this was huge news, and I'm glad it's getting the attention that it is in the media. Well, let's turn now to the Senate. On Tuesday, the chamber passed landmark bipartisan legislation to protect same-sex and interracial marriage. The House will vote on it as early as next week. Benji, how would this protect same-sex and interracial marriage beyond the constitutional protections that already exist? Well, it would largely, the bill was largely framed as a compromise that would enshrine the status quo in case the courts decide those protections no longer exist, uh, especially when it comes to same-sex marriage. Remember, many states never passed a law saying same-sex marriage is legal. They just had it imposed on them when the Supreme Court ruled that uh, marriage equality was a constitutional right. So what this bill says is that states would have to recognize marriages from other states so that if even uh, the courts decided, as and Justice Clarence Thomas suggested, they should revisit this issue, even if the courts decided this was no longer a constitutional right, if you got married somewhere that allowed same-sex marriage, your marriage would be fully recognized with all the rights that come with it if you moved to a state that did not pass that law. So in that sense, it's really... Um, it provides an incredible amount of relief, I think, to a lot of families who are still trying to get used to this 6-3 conservative court and are worried about what might happen. Uh, it's, it's a major failsafe right now in case something changes. But what are the limitations? What won't it do? What it does not do is especially expand rights. It does not especially have some new protections uh, in some of the more controversial cases that we've seen over how far uh, religious objections can go to same-sex marriage, for example. You know, there have been debates that have made it to the Supreme Court about, for example, you know, whether a baker has to uh, provide services to a gay wedding, uh, whether... Um, States can bar uh, adoption agencies that, for religious reasons, do not uh, place uh, children with same-sex couples. It does not really wade into those results. And many of the Republican objections were that they wanted the bill to go farther wading into those, but on the side of stronger religious liberty protections. Um, a lot of major faith groups supported this bill as a compromise, but they largely left it, uh, left it to things like religious ceremonies and explicitly religious groups, not things like individual bills. Businesses. Wendy, briefly, how likely is it that this bill will pass in the House? 
the same-sex marriage bill, um, it, it well, if they get to it next week, it, it will pass in the House. If they wait until the Republican majority is in in January, not probably, maybe not so much. But, um, but if, I'm sure it will pass the House if they get to it next week. We're rounding up this week's news with Bloomberg's Wendy Benjaminson, Josh Meyer of USA Today, and Semaphore's Benji Sarlin. I'm Jen White. More from you and our guests in just a moment. Back now to the Friday News Roundup. Let's get to some big updates on the investigation into the insurrection. On Wednesday, a D.C. jury convicted two leaders of the far-right group, the Oath Keepers, with seditious conspiracy for their roles in the January 6th attack. The charge carries a maximum sentence of 20 years. As the verdict of this case makes clear, the department will work tirelessly to hold accountable those responsible for crimes related to the attack on our democracy on January 6th. 2021. That was Attorney General Merrick Garland. Josh, this ruling is a big win for the Justice Department and the House Committee investigating the insurrection. Explain why. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge win for them. Um, You know, I think one of the things that's important to note is that um, everybody thinks that Garland, you know, the former federal judge, is kind of a mousy and very process-oriented. But this was a huge victory for him, and it was it's kind of a bold step to take uh, in order to charge people with seditious conspiracy. Um, you know, his win rate at, at right now in the in the cases regarding January sixth, I think, is he's batting a thousand. He hasn't really lost any of the significant cases. But none has been nearly as significant as this one. It's a very complex jury verdict uh, where only two of the five Oath Keepers were convicted of what was far and away the most serious charge of seditious conspiracy. But it's very important that the others, too, were convicted of other charges that could send them to prison, too, for significant periods of time. Um, And, you know, another thing that's important to note is that even building a seditious conspiracy case, no less winning one, Um, has historically been so nearly impossible that few have even dared to do it. I mean, I spent a week last year in Arkansas reporting on this where uh, a prosecutor in 1988 uh, uh, filed a seditious conspiracy case against some of the top neo-Nazi leaders and Klan members for uh, plotting the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. That thing ended spectacularly badly for the U.S. government. All of them were acquitted. Uh, one of the um, defendants who was accused of lying in wait to assassinate a federal judge ended up marrying one of the uh, jurors because they were she had a, developed a crush on him during the trial. There was another case in 2012, the Hatari uh, militia in Michigan, uh, where that ended with almost everybody not getting convicted too. So even to take on a case like this was a big deal. Um, and the fact that they got uh, Stuart Rhodes and one of his top um, associates, Kelly Meggs of Florida, convicted of seditious conspiracy, I think is a huge victory for the Justice Department. Benji, what did the Justice Department have to prove uh, to, to say, yes, these people are guilty of seditious conspiracy? Well, the big difference between this and other January 6th charges was there's a view of the January 6th riot that that basically treated it as just that, a riot. There was essentially a peaceful protest against the election results, and then it got out of hand, and people kind of spontaneously, you know, charged into the Capitol. Seditious conspiracy charges were very important, at the very least symbolically, because what they were trying to prove is that this was not some spontaneous uprising. Um, These were people who were specifically plotting weeks in advance to, uh, to to gather weapons, to come up with contingencies, to come up with a plan in order to storm the Capitol and overturn the election. And, you know, it was a very difficult case, as mentioned. It wasn't a sure thing. You had to prove, you know, 
some of the members of the Oath Keepers, you know, were arguing that, you know, just because they were stockpiling weapons or talking about contingencies in case, say, you know, Trump fulfilled one of their conspiracy fantasies by, you know, invoking the Insurrection Act or something or calling on people to storm the Capitol legally in some way, uh, you know, then it's not the same thing as actively plotting to overthrow the government. Um, jury obviously was mixed on the charges in some ways, but it's very important that we have on the record now uh, by, by a jury of their peers as established what was going on on January 6th was not just a protest that got out of hand. Mm. This was part of a conscious plot, at least on some of the participants, to stop, to keep Donald Trump illegally in power, to overthrow the government, essentially. And that is why this is so significant. Wendy, is there any significance in this conviction for the former president himself? Yes, there is. Um, the What it will do is help move the ball a little bit forward on whether Trump was directly involved in the the seditious conspiracy himself or whether he encouraged these people. Um, what the Justice Department has to prove is not just that these people believed they were acting in Donald Trump's behalf or interpreting vague tweets as orders to go attack the Capitol, but whether or not he actually did that. I also think the, 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 the facing a stiff prison sentence of 20 years or more may get people like Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs, who got the, the strongest convictions, um, to cooperate with investigators on that in the hopes of maybe some leniency on sentencing. But yes, this, this actually, as Josh said, moves the ball forward in proving that this wasn't just a protest that got out of hand. Stuart Rhodes was convicted of, of having people planned and march in a certain way, you know, in single file into the Capitol, you know, um, in an attempt to overthrow the U.S. government. And that, I think, does make the case stronger. Well, let's move to the various investigations surrounding former President Donald Trump. A federal appeals court has scrapped the special master's review of documents seized from Mar-a-Lago. Josh, this ruling removes a major obstacle to the investigation of Trump's mishandling of government documents. What does this ruling mean for the investigation? Yeah, you know, it allows the investigation to move forward. I think, you know, you're seeing this, you know, move forward on several fronts now. You have uh, the special counsel that's been appointed uh, in the case. Uh, but this is a major defeat for President Trump, former President Trump, uh, basically halting a third-party review of the documents seized from his Mar-a-Lago estate. And there's a lot of people that I've talked to in recent weeks and months who believe that this is really serious liability for the former president, that he could really be in some serious legal jeopardy over this, especially when his um, explanations and excuses for why he took classified documents from the White House and brought them to Mar-a-Lago, um, you know, the, it appears to be all over the map. He has ad admitted that he did take them in some cases knowing that they were classified. Um, and the appeals court wrote, wrote that the, the law is clear. Uh, we cannot um, write a rule that allows any subject of a search warrant to block government investigations after the execution of the warrant, nor can we write a rule that allows only former presidents to do so. So I think that, you know, the 11th Circuit, um, you know, perhaps Trump was hoping that they would have his back on this, but they didn't. You know, they said that either approach, you know, where Trump's claiming to have some special standing here, uh, would be a, quote, radical reordering of our case law limiting the federal court's involvement in criminal investigations, and that both would violate bedrock separations of powers limitations. And so what that means is essentially that the Justice Department can now proceed, uh, you know, with all due um, haste uh, in investigating obstruction of justice, criminal mishandling of government records, 
uh, and violations of the Espionage Act, which is the most serious one. Um, one thing that I would also want to mention about the, um, you know, the earlier case that we were just talking about, about the, um, uh, you know, uh, the Oath Keepers, is that they were convicted, besides just being convicted of seditious conspiracy, I believe all, all of the five of them were, were convicted of, of trying to stop an official proceeding from taking place. And that's a very serious charge, too. And that's one that I think the president, uh, former president, and his, his associates, including uh, Kevin McCarthy, have to be very concerned about, because I think that there is some evidence that's been presented by the January 6th committee and even by the Justice Department and some of their, uh, you know, filings that Trump himself and his associates were trying to obstruct an official proceeding. So there could be some legal liability there. I mean, the president, uh, Trump could face charges that he was trying to, you know, use the, the rally on the morning of January 6th. Uh, to order his uh, troops and supporters to go to the Capitol, attack the Capitol, and, and stop a federal proceeding from taking place, an official proceeding. So, you know, he could be in some serious legal jeopardy uh, on a number of fronts because of this. And getting the special master out of the way, I think, removes a huge roadblock from the Justice Department figuring out exactly what happened here. Meanwhile, yet another Trump ally has been called to testify before a special grand jury in Georgia. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is being ordered to testify in an investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Now, on Tuesday, the South Carolina Supreme Court rejected an effort by Meadows to avoid testifying in Georgia. Wendy, he's just the latest major Republican figure to be compelled to testify in this case. How is it progressing? Slowly. Um, <laughs> but, but it is progressing. Um, it's taking a while to get, you know, each of these top Republicans who are still in Trump's um, camp and still long for his good wishes um, are resisting going to testify about this. Um, but now Mark Meadows has to. Um, and so, you know, Mark Meadows is going to be very, very key to this because he was chief of staff at the time. He was with Trump at the White House all through those days between the election in November and his departure on January 20th. He knows his state of mind. He was there for all of the phone calls. Um, you know, he really, almost as well as Donald Trump himself, knows what he was saying and what he was thinking. And just a quick um, reminder, this is a phone call in which Trump can be heard um, asking Georgia's Secretary of State or telling him that he wants him to find 11,780 votes that would allow him to win in that state. Absolutely, yes. I was saying his, his attempt to overturn the election, um, to overturn Biden's victory in Georgia. That That is what they are looking for. And Mark Meadows knows what the president was thinking. Well, let's quickly get an update on one last Trump investigation, one that's been also going on for a long time. It's been three years since U.S. lawmakers first asked for Donald Trump's tax returns. This week, six years' worth of returns were delivered to the House. Currently, the House Ways and Means Committee is led by Democrats, but in January, that changes so, Benji, what happens next? Well, I have a feeling that the Republicans on the committee are not likely to continue this investigation. I mean, they have a lot of plans for investigations. This is not likely to be one of them. So essentially, in some ways, it is uh, a victory for Democrats that after years of arguing that this was a straightforward uh, case where they have the ability to request tax returns uh, using their, their powers, um, on the other hand, they're left with, you know, a month left in office. And it's, you know, unclear how much they'll actually be able to analyze these, use these, hold hearings on them, get much out of them. So it, it's symbolic. We've yet to see the substance. It's also worth noting, like, we have no specific 
reason to think there's something in these tax returns. It's been a huge symbolic fight ever since Trump broke with recent tradition by refusing to release his tax returns while running for office in 2016. Uh, you know, Joe Biden has you know long released his returns publicly, as of other candidates for office. Um, we it, we don't know necessarily if there's going to be some grand bombshell in these. It could just be a red herring. Well, we'll have to leave the conversation there. Benji, Wendy, Josh, thanks so much. Before we go, a remembrance. When there's nothing but a slow Actress and singer Irene Cara passed away this week. She died Saturday of unknown causes at her Florida home. Kara is best remembered for two of the biggest movie songs of the 1980s, Fame from 1980 and Flashdance from 1983. Kara won the Oscar and Grammy in 1984 for Best Original Song for Flashdance, What a Feeling. The South Bronx singer and actor began her career as a child singing and dancing on television. She eventually became a regular on the PBS show The Electric Company. Afterwards, she continued to appear on and off Broadway and later, more television. Kara became a star thanks to one word. She sang the title track and played the role of Coco Hernandez in the film. Here's Kara in 2014 talking to the show Profiles about the impact of fame. I wasn't aware that it would be what it's become at the time. And so many of my fans tell me from all over the country and all over the world that they've become dancers, choreographers, or professionals in the entertainment industry because of the inspiration of that film. Irene Cara was 63. Special thanks to today's guests, Wendy Benjaminson, the deputy managing editor for U.S. government at Bloomberg News, Benji Sarlin, the Washington bureau chief for Semaphore News, and Josh Meyer, the domestic security correspondent at USA Today. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A.
We're rounding up the week's biggest headlines from around the globe. It's the international edition of the News Roundup. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. It's been 40 weeks of war in Ukraine. Last night, President Biden said he'd be willing to speak with Vladimir Putin if the Russian leader is willing to end the war. But he noted that President Putin has made it clear that he's not ready to do that. Around 200,000 troops have been wounded or killed on both sides combined. And with winter weather setting in, temperatures are dropping in Ukraine. This week, widespread power outages made it very hard to stay warm. Water has been in short supply, too. Helping us out today as we look at the biggest stories around the world, Anne-Marie Hordern, the Washington correspondent at Bloomberg. Anne-Marie, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Also with us, Nina Maria Potts. She joins us from London. She's the director of global news coverage at Feature Story News. Nina Maria, it's great to have you. Good to be here. And in Beijing, we have David Rennie, the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist. Hello, David. Hello. Well, let's start in China, where protests are not unusual, but the scenes that played out on the streets throughout the country this week seem to have affected the Communist Party leaders. China's now signaled a shift in its zero-COVID stance. Some restrictions have been eased despite high daily case numbers. Districts in Shanghai and Guangzhou were released from lockdown measures on Thursday. Now, David, you are there. How would you sum up events this week? It's been an absolutely extraordinary week. And you have to kind of break it down into pieces. So one of the extraordinary things was uh, I was out on the streets on Sunday night with other colleagues and we saw something really unusual, which was students, mostly young people, out there for five hours with the police filming them, watching them, chanting slogans, wanting freedom, wanting human rights, saying that the very strict COVID policies we've had here for nearly three years were really kind of ruining their lives. That's unbelievably rare in Beijing. But I think actually bigger than that, if you're the Chinese leadership, is the fact that it wasn't just students chanting political slogans in places like Beijing and Shanghai. It was a sense that the whole country, even Chinese workers who really don't get involved in politics at all, just signaling real discontent uh, with every aspect of these very super harsh lockdowns. And you saw protests all over the country for different reasons, some of them to do with workers, migrants wanting to go and get paid, kicking down fences that were locking them in, Uh, a real tragedy with an apartment building fire where some people died because we think the fire exits were locked, which is kind of everyone's worst fear here with all of these lockdowns. And since then, this policy that has held this country in an absolute kind of vice for nearly three years is kind of changing every hour we get new messages. Everyone in Beijing tonight is sending each other messages saying, I just got this notice from, from the local government. And it says that we don't have to do COVID tests, or apparently we don't have to have a test to go on the bus. And apparently we can go to the airport without a test. And we don't know whether this is the end completely, or they're trying to make it less painful and less unpopular. But something very, very big is happening here. And the big fear is that if they're doing it as a response to this anger And because they're running out of money for all of this testing and quarantining at the beginning of winter when they haven't vaccinated Chinese people properly, then actually we could face an absolutely enormous exit wave of infections and and potentially a lot of deaths. David, why, why are so many of the protesters holding up blank pieces of paper? So this is something that's actually not unique to China. And again, that's very much the political protests which we've seen on university campuses, Uh, in quite a lot of cities and here in Beijing and Shanghai with mostly young people. And those get a lot of attention because, of course, we're we're very, very sort of surprised to see young people expressing political views in a place where, you know, we now know the police have been rounding them up and bringing them into police stations. And some people who are seen as ringleaders we haven't seen since. And no doubt they will get 
you know, jail time. So that is a big deal. But again, I think what's important is to take a step back and say it's not just these political protests and the pieces of blank paper, which is a sort of a complaint about censorship. It's saying, you know, this is so strict a country that all we can do is hold up a blank piece of paper. That was kind of the, the sign they were sending. But it's all these bigger protests involving people who don't get interested in politics, you know, workers, middle class homeowners who have been locked in uh, into their housing compounds for a long time. Uh, places in, in the far west of the country, Xinjiang, which is already notorious, of course, because of the very harsh policies they have there all the time looking after the, the, the Uyghur Muslim minority. That's been under lockdown for nearly four months and people are going bust, they can't work, they're desperate. And so there's a sense that the entire country has just had enough. Mm. And remarkably, this policy is collapsing in front of our eyes. Well, on Tuesday, China's foreign ministry spokesperson Zhao Lixian paused for a long time when asked by a reporter if China would reconsider the zero COVID policy. He then eventually said this. China has been following the dynamic zero COVID policy and has been making adjustments. We believe that with the leadership of the Communist Party of China and cooperation from the Chinese people, our fight against COVID-19 will be successful. Now, President Xi's zero-COVID policy by almost all metrics isn't working. Bloomberg reports the numbers testing positive in Beijing alone this week hit a new record high. Uh, Nina, what are you taking away from perhaps the the public face of the leadership in China and and what's happening in the streets and some of the changes that people are getting? Well, I I wanted to start with a caveat, which is I think it's getting harder and harder to talk about China from the outside with a degree of authority. It's getting harder to be certain about what's really going on. Uh, To some extent, that's because the wall obviously has been up for a long time now, for at least three years. There's a lot of confident commentary about China from the outside and perhaps very little first-hand current experience. I'm, I'm saying that not just as a caveat, but because the psychological gulf keeps widening between China and the outside world. And and you can't know which way China's COVID policies might go uh, from the outside. And and that matters particularly when thinking about the Chinese people, what they really want, how do they feel about the future, uh, and what the government's response will be. It's all unknowable from the outside. I think what this moment has perhaps revealed is the potential cost of President Xi's choices. and, and and problems that have been going on in China for some time, whether it's, you know, the, the way that the supply chain works, uh, the way that China treats its workers, um, issues that the pandemic has clearly made much worse. Uh, we are beginning to see the potential cost uh, to the Chinese public believing and until now that lockdowns worked were going to work without a massive and effective vaccine program. Um, the dilemma for President Xi is often kind of presented as two options, mass lockdowns or, or mass infection. If China ends up with both, to what extent that undermines Xi or not, and to what extent I think at this point is unknowable. Mm. Well, David, again, you're, you're there in Beijing. How knowable is it from within the country? I think it's not even that clear within the government, because remember, China is a very big country. And the way that this whole zero COVID policy has worked for so long is that officials running cities or counties or even villages were told, if you have an outbreak on your watch, you will be punished, you will be fired. And that's one of the reasons we've seen these tremendously harsh, often kind of, you know, totally irrational, you know, people you know, spraying fields in the middle of nowhere with disinfectant and locking people up for weeks for no good reason at all. Because every official thought, if I'm not unbelievably strict, I'll lose my job. 
And so now we actually see today uh, various cities around China saying, you know, we don't care what Beijing is saying about opening up. We're not going to stop trying to have zero COVID because this is the policy. Because remember, until very recently, this was not just a debate about how to fight this pandemic. This was not just a question about public health. This was a absolutely core plank of Xi Jinping's argument to the Chinese people, but also the whole world, that the Chinese Communist Party is better than places like America, that because America has had more than a million people die of COVID, and China's official figure is still running at 5,000, that they would say, you see, we care about saving lives. We care about the people in a way that decadent, selfish democracies have completely failed to do. And so this has been not just a public health policy, it's been core, this idea of not having any infections, not allowing any deaths, and that you were willing to pay any price in terms of lost liberties and lockdowns to achieve it. To see that falling apart, you're seeing you know, the whole country just utterly unclear as to where this goes from here. Well, America's top diplomat is also weighing in. This is what Secretary of State Antony Blinken told NBC News on Wednesday. Any country where you see people trying to speak out, trying to speak up, to protest peacefully, to make known their frustrations, whatever the issue is, in any country where we see that happening and then we see the government take massive repressive action to, um, to stop it, that's not a sign of strength, it's a sign of weakness. And Marie, what conversations are you hearing in Washington about these protests and what they tell us about perhaps U.S.-China relations right now? Well, it's an interesting time, right, because it's on the heels of President Biden's first meeting with Xi Jinping for his administration. And there was a bit of an olive branch and warming of relations, I would say, with the fact that Secretary Blinken, who we just heard from, is set to go there at the start of next year to continue on these discussions. So the response in public has been quite one, I would say, a muted response. Immediately when we heard from Admiral Kirby on the National Security Council, their spokesperson, he said, you know, the United States continues to stand up and support the right of peaceful protests. That line could be taken on a number of countries and protests we're seeing around the world right now. Um, but they did say they're watching it closely, but that's it. But behind closed doors, uh, what officials will say to you, and they're not going to say this in public, is that they, they want to use this cautious language because they don't want to be seen as stoking the protests especially at a time when they are in this potential warming of relations with with China. We're discussing protests across China in response in part to the country's zero COVID policies. Now, David, on your podcast this week, you talked about how COVID protests played out on your own apartment block. Describe what happened. What did you see? Well, this is one of several apartment buildings that uh, people just suddenly said, hang on, how come officials with no legal status, with just a red armband at the very lowest level of government, have been locking down whole apartment buildings because one person in the building was a potential positive case when they tested for COVID? Because we've all been testing until today, sort of every day or every other day. And, you know, I was locked down last week. Everyone's been locked down endlessly because they could lock down an entire apartment building just by saying, you know, you're closed now. And suddenly a whole bunch of basically kind of middle class, quite self-confident Chinese Beijing is in different complexes. We're like, hang on, the law doesn't say you could do that. And so they summoned uh, one of these local officials. And I was there to watch this guy in his red armband. And my neighbors were saying, you know, where's the law that lets you do this? And he was saying, but we've all got to look after each other and, you know, stay safe. And they're like, no, 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 we're talking about the law. And you're talking about, you know, emotions, none of this nonsense. And he backed down. And that was that was almost a week ago now. And I think that was the first crack uh, in this edifice. And I think The real truth is that it hasn't been working. As you say, Jen, the numbers are going up and up and up. 
And it's costing a fortune. Cities and provinces across China have been spending just unimaginable amounts of money, not just on testing, but also these huge quarantine sites like giant warehouses. And they have to feed everyone in there every day and pay for everything. They're all free. All the testing is free. And it's bankrupting this country. And because it's not working, because the case numbers are going up, because the latest variants, Omicron, are just so transmissible and fast that even China's strict sort of systems don't catch them. It's that combination of it's been nearly three years, it's costing a fortune, it's killing the economy, and now it's not working. Something crossed, you know, crossed a line for the Chinese people and they're just done with it. Well, David, considering the fact that these protests, as you said, are about the zero COVID policy, but also about censorship, also about um, workers and their rights. What are the political risks here to President Xi? So there are definitely political risks to him because, uh, you know, he has been called the commander in chief of the people's war against COVID. And it's been so utterly associated with him. And, you know, from his point of view, the last three years have been a great triumph because after the initial wave of COVID in Wuhan, he could then point to America under President Trump or Britain under Boris Johnson and say, look at these democracies, you know, full of deaths and, and chaos. And at least in China, things may be strict, but you're safe. So that, as you know, when that argument falls apart, that's a big political crisis. Now, people saying that they're fed up of free speech and, and censorship and, and all of those things, uh, We've seen it before. Um, unfortunately, you know, I've now been here twice for a total of nine years. I've seen these things come and go and people get cross in a crisis. But I think if the economy gets back on track, if they can cope with lifting all these lockdowns, then people will stop grumbling about politics because a lot of people have just learned to keep their heads down and, and, and focus on their lives. The big problem we have now is that it's the beginning of the winter, which is always when all viruses take off, particularly respiratory viruses. And so many old people here in particular are not properly vaccinated. So we could see huge numbers of cases and unfortunately huge numbers of deaths and then fear and chaos and overwhelmed hospitals. And I think that is actually going to be a much bigger political crisis uh, than people complaining about free speech. Well, let's stay in China for the moment. The country is mourning the death of Shang Ximin. The body of the former president arrived in Beijing yesterday after being driven through the streets of Shanghai. Chinese state TV showed footage of the hearse making its way through the city, mourners dressed in black lining the route. Nina, how did China change under his leadership as president for a decade and in a senior member of the Communist Party? Well, the timing of his death, because of the type of leader he was and and the period uh, that he ruled has been very awkward, and not least because China's tradition of mass public mourning has been a trigger for political protests in the past. I mean, the comparisons being made between Jiang Zemin and President Xi are obvious. Uh, Jiang Zemin was seen as a leader who pulled China out of international isolation after Tiananmen. The economy grew under him. He propelled China into the WTO um, it was an era in which a lot of Chinese people saw their, uh, the limits on their personal lives uh, lifted. Uh, but in contrast with Xi's policies of COVID isolation, as David says, a slowing economy, mass surveillance, uh, it's not very surprising that the government has gone to the efforts it has to subdue the mourning for Jiang Zemin, um, and not just subdue it, but censor it. Uh, so that any nostalgia expressed for the Jiang era isn't compared to the crackdown that we're seeing today. 
Um, and I think that that's been true for some time. I mean, he's been a vehicle for criticism of the current government for some time. I mean, he was also a believer in one-party rule and party loyalty. He was part of the leadership responsible for the crackdown uh, on protests in, in Tiananmen. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's clearly being, you know, projected um, carefully. Um, but I think coming back to, to David's point about, you know, perhaps comparisons with former China and the economy now, um, it'll be interesting to see how the mood of students uh, changes, especially if unemployment rises further. I think it's at 18% right now in cities across China. Lots of students complaining of social anxiety and depression and isolation, throw in the lack of uh, job prospects, you know, could that frustration grow? And I mention that only because it is a kind of stark comparison, uh, and I hope David would agree, to the years, um, with with the years under Jiang Zemin. David, uh, briefly, do you agree? Yeah, and there's a generational issue. I think Nina's absolutely right that young people have this nostalgia because he's not Xi Jinping, because, you know, some of your listeners may remember, you know, he would come to America and recite the Gettysburg Address and dance with people at sort of receptions at the White House. He was a very self-confident, somewhat flamboyant, sometimes a bit comic figure, very unlike the very dour, austere Xi Jinping. Older people actually don't like him very much, and they remember a lot of job losses when big state-owned enterprises uh, were privatized, and they remember his role as a, as a hardliner. He was not a liberal. He was not a Democrat. But because he was confident and, and cheerful and liked to sing songs and recite poems, certainly young people uh, have been sort of posting lots of memes about him, uh, you know, and, and, and that will continue. But they can use COVID, I think, as an excuse not to allow mass gatherings in Beijing. Well, let's turn now to Iran, where protests continue. It's been more than two months since the death of Masa Amini in Tehran. She was arrested by Iran's morality police and died in their custody. Her death set off protests that have swept across the country. At least 460 protesters have been killed since September. That's according to U.S.-based monitor, the Human Rights Activist News Agency. An unknown number of journalists and demonstrators have also been imprisoned or disappeared. On Thursday, Hillary Clinton, former U.S. Secretary of state weighed in. I would not be negotiating with Iran on anything right now, including the nuclear agreement. I think that, frankly, horse is out of the barn. When Trump pulled us out, we lost the eyes that we had on what they were doing inside Iran. And I think it's unlikely that any agreement would be uh, agreed to. And I don't think we should look like we're seeking an agreement at a time when the people of Iran are standing up to their oppressors. Hillary Clinton speaking there to CNN's Christiane Amanpour. Anne-Marie, this week, the current Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, praised the quote-unquote extraordinary courage of women in Iran. To what extent is the Biden administration happy to leave it at that? Well, they've done a lot of that, praising the women, calling for peaceful protests. Another thing Secretary Blinken said also to CNN is that he says that the Ayatollah and the regime, a profound mistake that they make is they try to point the finger at others, i.e. the United States, Europe, claiming that they're the ones that are responsible, they're stoking the flames of the protest. Um, Beyond that, what we've also saw from the administration is the fact that they've also have some more sanctions against Iran. Already, Iran is heavily sanctioned by the United States, but sometimes there are other little tweaks you can make to make sure somehow a third party is not helping shipping oil and gas and you go after that individual. Um, Recently, there was a Chinese company they sanctioned. So they've done more than just 
the speeches about the fact that they want to support these women, they support peaceful protests around the world. But as you say, that's pretty much it. And when it comes to their own nuclear talks, they're at the moment just at an absolute standstill. There is no movement on these discussions. Nina, what sense do you have from Europe and the rest of the world about how much support the West is willing to give those still risking their lives to protest in Iran? Well, I think that there is a great deal of, of uh, support and you know, we've seen protests unfold um, internationally and, and, and particularly in Europe. There's some very worrying developments uh, in the last week, reports of um, the extent of Iran's security operation and apparatus uh, overseas and the targeting, the alleged targeting by Iran of uh, both Iranians uh, in the diaspora who are deemed to be working counter to the regime, but also Western officials. Um, I think European hope uh, has dimmed over the prospects of, um, of, of talks, obviously, and, and uh, as we've just heard, they've come to a complete standstill. Um, but I, I think, you know, the Europeans perhaps were always a bit more optimistic than the Americans on that front. This week, President Biden welcomed French President Emmanuel Macron for the first state visit of his administration. Uh, this is Macron's second official trip to the U.S. The last time was in 2018. He met with then-President Donald Trump. Anne-Marie, this is the Biden administration's first state visit. Why is it significant that France was invited to be the first nation welcomed by the president? Well, they're the America's longest uh, ally, but also I think it signals a cooperation the Biden administration want to have in terms of maybe an olive branch of sorts after there's been some miscommunication between the French and the United States. This time last year, we were still discussing the blow up out of the United States doing a deal with uh, the United Kingdom, bring Australia involved for nuclear subs, AUKUS. Uh, that was a huge issue between Washington and Paris. Uh, so now you have the U.S. oldest allies here for the first state dinner. And there was a lot of fiery rhetoric going into this meeting from the French, from Emmanuel Macron himself, talking about unfriendly trade policies, pointing to the U.S.'s recent Inflation Reduction Act, and them saying that would unfairly give subsidies to American companies. Bruno Le Maire, his finance minister, even went as far to comparing it to Chinese state industrial policy. And then the press conference yesterday, it seems the temperature was taken down. President Biden said he never meant to not include folks that were cooperating with the United States. And Macron said that they're going to synchronize and have their teams uh, cooperate going forward. But there still remains an issue that legislation was passed. And it remains to be seen what can actually be done at this point to really acquiesce the French and other European officials' concerns. David, what were your big takeaways from this meeting? I thought it was tremendously important. And I can tell you it was being watched very, very closely here in China. And why is that? Well, you know, it's not the first time we've had a French president and an American president getting scratchy about subsidies and trade disputes. I mean, remember all the years that Boeing and Airbus used to accuse each other of being illegally subsidized. I mean, that's kind of standard. But I think what we understood from this visit and the fact that the two leaders talked about things like Ukraine and China policy in their joint press conference at the White House is this isn't just about France and the US. It's not even just about Europe and the US. It's about the West. Is there a united West that is willing to uh, take pain to, uh, to, to push back when things like the Russian invasion of Ukraine happen? Uh, are they willing to push back against the autocracy in China, even if that costs money and is difficult? And I think you saw mixed messaging, frankly. Uh, you saw, you know, Macron went out of his way. As you say, Janet, at the press conference, they were trying to kind of 
talk about how well they had got on. And Macron indeed said, you know, it is unbelievably important to have, very important to have support uh, from the US for the Ukrainians, but for the stability of the world, that it's with the Americans helping the Ukrainians in this war, that we're defending the rules-based order. And the two men also talked about defending the rules-based order against the Chinese threat. And so that is, you know, that's the West standing up and saying, we're willing to spend money on this. But I think the problem is that the war in Ukraine is seen, including in Paris, as falling disproportionately on the Europeans. Now, many American listeners will say, well, hang on, we're spending all of our money sending all these weapons, far more money uh, than the Europeans are spending. How dare Europe be whining about the cost of Ukraine? But remember, if you're sitting in Europe, you're paying an absolute fortune for your energy bills this winter. Plenty of people in the UK and other European countries wondering if they can afford to heat their homes this winter, because that Russian kind of gas war, the disruption of Ukraine is really causing economic pain and disruption in Europe. And you're seeing where I'm in Beijing, the Chinese message, we just had the European Union's uh, council leader, uh, Charles Michel here uh, yesterday. What was the message from China? Absolutely blatant. It was Europe is being uh, used by the Americans. It's paying the price for the war in Ukraine. We applaud Europe for being more independent and not just following the Americans. And so they're trying to divide the West. And so I think that that's what this visit was really about, was here we are in 2022 with the Chinese and the Russians testing the rules-based order. Is the West capable of staying united even when it's getting expensive and scratchy? And Marie, briefly... Biden and Macron did show a, a united front on the war in Ukraine. But what about in their approach to President Putin? Are they on the same page there? Well, I think Biden moved a little bit towards Macron's approach yesterday. While he said he has no imminent plans or to meet President Putin, he said that he would if Putin was serious about leaving Ukraine and serious about ending this war. And it comes as President Macron says that he has an upcoming phone call with President Putin. And he's had a few of them since the war began. He's wanted to be this negotiator of peace. It also comes that this morning we had Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of Germany, initiating a call, according to the Kremlin, with Putin. And they discussed a number of things, including the grain deal and potential fertilizer coming out of Russia, which the West wants to continue. So you do see uh, President Biden being a little bit more open, potentially, to discussions. But it is with conditions. That was made very clear. One final French headline. Every year, UNESCO designates several cultural items as worthy of humanity's preservation. This year, the list includes the chewy, crusty French baguette. French President Emmanuel Macron celebrated the announcement in a tweet. He described the baguette as, quote, 250 grams of magic and perfection in our daily lives. Not to be outdone by the baguette, The Guardian reports that at this week's gala dinner for President Macron at the White House, Jill Biden and on serving American cheeses. Now, if you're like me, you saw that headline and read American cheese, and I did get a giggle out of imagining the French president unwrapping a Kraft single, but in fact, that was not the case. They did include a blue cheese from Southwest Oregon, the first American product to win the World Cheese Championships in 2019. Let's turn now to news about the uncertain future facing South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa. A parliamentary report has found evidence that has led some to call for his impeachment, and the main exhibit appears to be the president's sofa. Nina, this report centers on allegations that thieves found millions of dollars stuffed into a sofa, but now questions are being asked about where the president got this money and whether he declared it. What more can you tell us? 
Well, this uh, allegedly happened in early 2020. As you say, potentially millions were stolen from his ranch. The cash was not apparently declared for tax, uh, nor was the theft reported to the police. And the scandal then erupted as Farmgate, which is what South Africans call it. Um, This independent panel now says it's got evidence of gross wrongdoing. Um, It could therefore represent a constitutional violation, a breach of the presidential oath. That could could, uh, prompt impeachment proceedings um, against the president. He says he's innocent. Uh, For impeachment to go ahead, you need a two-thirds majority, meaning half of the ANC's members would have to join opposition parties. It's possible, uh, but some people I've been speaking to in South Africa think it's unlikely that the ANC will split that way. Either way, Ramaphosa, I think, faces an attempt to replace him as ANC leader. There was speculation last night that he might resign rather than face a protracted battle, but he postponed a public address. A lot lot of people, I think, outside South Africa are asking why does his potential downfall matter? Well, it matters because Ramaphosa came to power on an anti-corruption platform, and South African politics have long been mired by corruption scandals. And it matters because we might be witnessing a split in the ANC. And it's also the latest uh, crisis in a a country, you know, riddled with political instability, rolling nationwide power cuts that have hammered the economy, shocking levels of unemployment, uh, which are 50% of failing health and education systems, and and a crumbling infrastructure. I I was just in uh, Johannesburg and because of the water and power shortages, um, people were going without electricity for about six hours a day. Uh, Meetings that I was going to would get delayed because people couldn't wash their kids or get them to school uh, in time for meetings, couldn't lead their lives. And all this while um, President Ramaphosa was overseas, uh, doing state visits and uh, and attending the G20 in Bali, uh, you know, big pla- public uh, international platform for him, um, but a terrible crisis back in South Africa. So it does matter. Emery, Bloomberg spoke with South Africa's finance minister earlier today. What did you hear there? Yeah, it was his finance minister. And what he said is that he said there's a 10 percent. That's what he gave the odds of a chance of Ramaphosa, Ramaphosa leaving office. Um, we should know he's an ally of the president. Um, but he says he's more popular than the ANC. That's the party. And he says his prayers for now that he remains. There were key supporters that met last night to try to figure out a plan to potentially keep him from resigning over the handling um, of, the, of this robbery at his game farm, game farm that, that Nina has outlined. Um, so it remains to be seen whether or not he is going to be able to come out of this and maintain uh, his leadership position. But you could see that those close to him, they are not giving in just yet. They are even risking potentially their own reputations, and they are backing him. Well, let's move now to the peace deal between the Ethiopian government and Tigrayan forces. Last month, a ceasefire was signed in South Africa between the warring sides, and this week they met to outline a disarmament plan. This is the first time both sides have talked face-to-face since this fighting began. The peace deal commits the government to restoring Tigray's basic services. No nation in the entire globe understands the cost of war and the value of peace than the people of Tigray this time. So when the 
the peace deal means for Tigray. Siege and blockade will be lifted, and Tigray will be part of the world again. And this peace deal for Tigray and for me means patients will get medicine and no more suffering and days of hunger. That was Tess Fahane Haile Mariam from the Tigray Development Association. Nina, first just remind us how civilians have fared under this conflict. Oh, gosh. Well, as, as part of my trip to Africa in October, I, I was in Addis uh, visiting our team of journalists there. Um, and years of reporting on this conflict has really taken its toll. Um, I think we can be cautiously optimistic uh, that Ethiopia has kind of taken a step back from the brink of a really deep abyss. Uh, two years of terrible conflict, the most brutal in decades in the region. More than half a million people dead, millions more displaced, probably permanently. Um, The scale of the fighting has been often described as Africa's Ukraine. Uh, Finally, in early November, just after my trip there, uh, the government and the Tigray rebel movement in the north, uh, as we've heard, you know, came to an agreement. Unexpectedly, definitely welcome news. Um, But... Uh, the allegations of war crimes, ethnic cleansing on a mass scale don't magically evaporate. Uh, Ethiopia is accused of warfare by starvation and the Tigray region is still in desperate need of supplies. Um, you know, one big question is, do the roots of the conflict just disappear? I, I think tribal ethnic differences, the, the political power struggle for who controls the top leadership and the, and the threat to Ethiopian unity uh, remain very tangible. Uh, I met a couple of people in Addis, uh, you know, had, who had fought uh, multiple times uh, in a series of tribal conflicts, you know, bullet scars, knife wounds in, in the chest and the back. Um And I just got a really strong sort of feeling that people are really, really tired. And this is in Addis. uh, And obviously, you can't get outside Addis at all easily, if at all. Um, And and people, I think, generally, without wanting to generalize from the outside, are just desperate, desperate for peace. They're tired. They're worn out. um, And they feel hard done by, by the international community. I mean, partly because the government tells them that they're frequently misrepresented. Um, I found the atmosphere in Addis very tense. A month on, I'm not convinced that it feels any less so. Um, And also remember that Eritrean forces are still attacking civilians um, reportedly, which, you know, ultimately will undermine the peace process. So... Yes, I mean, good news, but a devastating story. Well, as Nina says there this morning, the Associated Press reported that Eritrean troops are are still committing atrocities in the Tigray region. Anne-Marie, how is the U.S. government monitoring the situation? Um, They constantly are monitoring what's going on. I think one of the biggest concerns right now is the fact that Uh, There's no timeline, as Nina is talking about, as they have, yes, they've had this agreement, but there's Internet access that the Tigray region does not have access to, right? And at this moment, what we've heard from uh, an Ethiopian minister at a UN event is that there is no timeline for that. Um, so really difficult for individuals. You know, internet service, when is the resumption going to be of the phone, electricity service? And uh, no date is set for any of these goals. So when there's no timeline, it's very difficult uh, to to 
to see how the path really is going to be moving forward. And especially for something so we take for granted, but so simple like internet, telecommunications, banking services, all of this, uh, pretty tragic. David, as we have alluded to, Degree has been under media blackout since the fighting began in November 2020. How has it hampered the delivery of aid to the region? It's not just the media. It's also that food and aid deliveries have been used as a weapon of war. And this is one of the things that you've seen again and again. Uh, international NGOs, the United Nations, uh, other countries pleading uh, with both sides in this kind of very long running. It's really the latest round of a sort of ethno uh, nationalist sort of civil war that has been going on since really the sort of the 70s and the 80s when the the north uh, the, the Tigrayans from the north of Ethiopia formed sort of an increasingly powerful group and were the ruling party of the country for for quite a while uh, in the 1990s. And as a result of this really intractable, venomous civil war along ethnic and ideological lines, uh, you saw, I mean, there are estimates of 300,000 civilians uh, who have starved to death uh, uh, or have been killed in the fighting. And they've really been the kind of the victims of this because the government in Addis Ababa, the capital, has been essentially blockading uh, Tigray, the region in the north, uh, as well as using allies from the next door country of Eritrea as foreign forces to help fight the Tigrayans. And so... You know, and we should not forget, Ethiopia is a very big country. It's 107 million people. Uh, it's, you know, it, far larger than most European, than all European countries. And so, you know, for this country to have had two years this, of this absolutely vicious civil war in which civilians were being used as kind of cannon fodder by blockading food supplies, that is one of the greatest things that needs to be done fast is to make this peace deal stick Uh, to get the heavy weapons handed in by the Tigrayans as they have promised to get the Eritrean foreign forces out of the the war zone and then to let the food and the aid and the medicine get back in to these huge areas that have really been starved as a weapon of war. Nina, I'm curious to hear from your time in the country just the, the reaction to the attention given to this conflict or the lack thereof. Um, I think people are very aware of it, to be honest, in, in Addis. And I mean, from outs- um, I mean outside of the country. Oh, from outside. I mean, I think one of the dynamics that has changed with Ethiopia um, is the way that international brokers are coming into this into the scene. I mean, I, I think there is obviously a lack of awareness. I mean, certainly not to the same extent. I mean, Ukraine is much more in the headlines, um, if, if that's what you mean. But I mean, just in terms of the international community's response, um, one thing that has noticeably shifted, and I really felt this in South Africa going to Addis, is the kind of delegitimacy or delegitimization, if I can say that, of the US as a people broker. Um, the South Africans feel very strongly um, that this is an African issue that can only be uh, sort of sorted by African players. Uh, and certainly the South Africans feel very proud of their track record of promoting peace. But South African officials that I spoke to um, just do not see a place for the US at all. That dynamic has profoundly shifted in Africa. Um, there's a total kind of rejection of uh, U.S. and to some some degree European interference uh, with much more sort of interest in hearing from the Russians uh, and the Chinese, certainly. And that, that dynamic has really changed. Well, we'll have to leave our conversation there. Nina Maria and Marie, David, thanks so much for your time today. Before we go, a remembrance. Sun comes up and you say
Christine McVie passed away this week in a London hospital. Born Christine Perfect, she was the keyboardist and singer-songwriter for the British-American band Fleetwood Mac. McVie joined the band in 1970, along with then-husband John McVie, who was the band's bassist. She wrote the hit song, Say You Love Me, from the 1975 self-titled album Fleetwood Mac. The song charted well in both the U.S. and the U.K., and that was just the beginning for McVie, who would continue to write hits for the band. The biggest one came from the monumental 1977 album, Rumors. Don't Stop was written after McVie's divorce from John after eight years of marriage. Stevie Nicks remembers Christine McVie's one-of-the-guys attitude when it came to her career, saying she wanted to be taken as seriously as the men in the band. Here's Nicks at a film festival in 2012 talking about McVie's influence. All of a sudden, I had this great woman in my life. I had a best friend in my band. And Chris and I made a pact from the very beginning you know, she knew all the famous people. Stevie Winwood used to carry her books to school. And we said to each other, if we're sitting in a room with all those famous guys, they will respect us or we will walk out. Hmm. And so we kind of went in with such an attitude, the two of us, that we were a force to be reckoned with. McVie remained a member of Grammy-winning Fleetwood Mac, taking breaks from the group when necessary, and continued to work on solo projects through the years. Christine McVie was 79. A big thank you to our guests today, Anne-Marie Hordern, Washington correspondent at Bloomberg, Nina Maria Potts, the director of global news coverage at Feature Story News, and David Rennie, the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the podcast Drum Tower. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.